Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 899. Farah Mansour on the Deep October Surprise, Part 4. This is being recorded on April 6th of the year 2016. Uh, we are going to be wrapping up uh, a revisitation and a partial excerpting of some interviews that I did with a gentleman named Farah, F-A-R-A, Mansoor, M-A-N, as in Nancy, S as in Sam, O-O-R, as in Roger. Farah Mansoor is a member, well, is a member of the Iranian resistance, and he has done a very important piece of research that has indicated that what is generally known as the October Surprise, which posits a deal made by the Reagan-Bush campaign to have the Iranian government under Ayatollah Khomeini and the mullahs withhold the U.S. hostages who were taken from the Iranian embassy in November of 1979 until after Jimmy Carter's humiliation and consequent electoral defeat were assured. Farah has uncovered a very, well, not uncovered, but has presented a very compelling body of research indicating that what is commonly known as the October Surprise is actually the outgrowth of a long bipolar or bilateral, not bilateral, but a, a long covert operation stretching back to the mid-1970s that had both a foreign and a domestic component. Uh, Farah has developed a very compelling body of research that indicates that, in fact, the CIA, through former CIA director Richard Helms, who had left the CIA and been appointed by Richard Nixon as U.S. ambassador to Iran, that Richard Helms had learned in 1974 that the Shah of Iran had cancer. Now, the Shah was reinstalled in power by a coup in 1953 called Operation Ajax. That was a CIA covert operation headed up by Kermit, a.k.a. Kim Roosevelt. Uh, some of the key players in the scenario that we have been presenting uh, date all the way back to that 53 coup and have been networking with each other. Now, according to Farah's research, uh, the CIA under George Bush uh, withheld that information from Jimmy Carter, and when Carter, first of all, failed to reappoint George Bush as CIA director, or at least give him an extended six months uh, that he requested and that Jimmy Carter would not give him. And then when Jimmy Carter conducted a house cleaning of some 800 veteran CIA covert operations officers, including major people like Theodore Shackley and Thomas Kleins. The CIA went about uh, initiating and successfully implementing a covert operation which not only destabilized Jimmy Carter, who was misinformed that the Shah was in good shape and that figured to be a major player in Iranian politics until the 1980s, and in turn, the Ayatollah Khomeini and the Shiite Muslim fundamentalists in Iran were installed in power in order to ensure that uh, a, an anti-communist government would come to power in Iran after the demise of the Shah to perpetuate Iran as an anti-communist bulwark on the southern flank of the former Soviet Union. This was done, and I call the, this gambit the deep October surprise because it goes all the way back to the 1970s. There was certainly the most profound collusion between uh, the Reagan-Bush forces 
and the Khomeini government of Iran. But it wasn't a deal that was cut during the 1980 presidential campaign, but rather uh, that campaign was capped by the successful realization of this covert operation. Many of the players who uh, figure prominently in this had been networking with elements of CIA and with each other for many, many years. The Shah of Iran himself had attended private school in Switzerland in the 1930s with Richard Helms, former CIA director having succeeded Alan Dulles, and the fellow who then became U.S. ambassador to Iran appointed by Richard Nixon. Another person who was networking with both Helms and the Shah at that same Swiss boarding school was General Hossein, H-O-S-S-E-I-N, Fardust, F-A-R-D-O-U-S-T. Fardust had been described as the Shah's eyes and ears. He also was running a, uh, a very elite intelligence service for the Shah that even outranked the Savak, the Shah's brutal secret service. Hossein Fardust, uh, in fact, was colluding with George Bush and later with the Reagan-Bush campaign. Uh, it was Hossein Fardus who first in, uh, informed uh, Richard Helms about the Shah's cancer. Later, it was Hossein Fardust who arranged for the publication of an article in a leading Iranian daily that uh, attacked Ayatollah Khomeini as being of Indian extraction and otherwise defamed Ayatollah Khomeini. This basically precipitated the rallying of the Shiite clergy in Iran uh, against the Shah and around Ayatollah Khomeini. Later, after Khomeini came to power, it was that same Hossein Fardus who was consulted by General uh, Karani, Q-A-R-A-N-I, to form the Iranian general staff. And all of those recommendations were followed, except for the recommendation for the Savak. Eventually, it was none other than General Hossein Fardus himself who became head of the Savama, S-A-V-A-M-A. That was the successor to the Sadak. That was the secret service of the Ayatollah's government. Some of the key names uh, there, and by the way, in the description for this program, there is a dramatis personae, so to speak, of many of the key characters, in addition to General Hossein Fardust. Uh, there was the aforementioned General Karani, Q-A-R-A-N-I. He had been a CIA asset since the 1953 coup. He had been tabbed by CIA to lead a coup against the Shah uh, that was unsuccessful because the Shah was being in the viewpoint of many, including, by the way, CIA, overly Repressive, so they attempted to overthrow him. The Shah was able to put down two coups, one in 58, another in 63. And even though General Karani was going to be executed, uh, he was saved by the CIA. Another very, very important fellow, and uh, General Karani had been networking with CIA since 1953. Uh, another very important fellow is Ibrahim Yazdi, Y-A-Z-D-I. He was actually a U.S. citizen. He began networking with a guy named Richard Cotton, last name C-O-T-T-A-M, and also the Ayatollah Muhammad Beheshti, B-E-H-E-S-H-T-I. Cotton had been head of the Iran desk at CIA in 1953 when Operation Ajax was implemented and the Mossadegh government in Iran was overthrown, and the Shah was reinstalled in power. By the way, uh, the British oil company that uh, Mossadegh was going to nationalize was not the Anglo-Persian, but the Anglo-Iranian oil company. I misspoke myself in the last program. 
Later, by the way, that became, it changed its name to British Petroleum and later BP. They were the central players in the, the, the explosion and fire and resulting pollution of the uh, Gulf, uh, that is uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico and the southern coast of the U.S. Uh, in the Deepwater Horizon episode of 2010. Now, Mohammed Beheshti was a Shiite fundamentalist. He visited Texas and uh, visited Ibrahim uh, Yazdi, who was a U.S. citizen. Richard Cotton uh, began networking with the Khomeini forces and with Ibrahim Yazdi. It was Ibrahim Yazdi who traveled to Iraq and helped get Khomeini out of Iraq and to Paris. Richard Cotton noted that Ibrahim uh, Yazdi was basically functioning as the Shah's uh, effective chief, of, uh, not the Shah, but Khomeini's effective chief of staff while in Paris. Later, it was Ibrahim Yazdi who uh, was working as a PR flak for Khomeini in the U.S., uh, assuring people that, in fact, Khomeini was not going to have a bloodbath and that he was democratically oriented and uh, other uh, convenient myths. Ultimately, when Khomeini came to power, uh, again, this as the result of another CIA-implemented coup, uh, Ibrahim uh, Yazdi became the deputy chief of staff for the interim government under Ayatollah Khomeini. In February of 1979, there was an abortive takeover of the U.S. Embassy in Iran, ostensibly by, quote, leftists, unquote, but actually that was done by Khomeini supporters themselves, posing as leftists. Then, that very same Dr. Ibrahim Yazdi, again, last name Y-A-Z as in Zebra, D-I, uh, arranged for a guy named Mashallah, M-A-S-H-A-L-L-A-H, Kashani, K-A-S-H-A-N-I, to basically head up a militia uh, or a paramilitary force that were installed uh, to, quote, guard, unquote, the U.S. embassy. In fact, Mashallah Kashani was working with the Sadak and with CIA. One of the things you're going to hear in the in the excerpted interview with Farah Mansour, is that the then U.S. ambassador, uh, actually I don't know if it was Sullivan himself who ordered it, but the Marine guards who were guarding the U.S. embassy were only allowed to carry sidearms. They were deprived of their service rifles, their M16s, which of course made any capability that they had of reacting to the takeover in November of 1979 much uh, weaker. Then it was the very same Mashallah Kashani, who again was installed as sort of the security director for the U.S. Embassy after that abortive coup, abortive takeover in February of 1979 after the U.S. Marine Guards were deprived of their M-16s. It was that very same Mashallah Kashani who led the takeover of the U.S. Embassy in November of 1979. Then, of course, the hostages were held until after uh, Jimmy Carter's humiliation and electoral defeat were assured they were released hours before or maybe hours after Reagan's uh, inauguration. We're going to reflect on not only the past but the, the implications for the present. Uh, one of the things to note in the, epi- in the excerpt you're going to be hearing from AFA number 38 is the fact that the fellow who was selected by General Hossein Fargust Again, networking with both Richard Helms and the Shah all the way back to the 1930s. The fellow who was selected by Hossein Fardus to become the head of the Navy uh, under Khomeini was, in fact, according to Farah, an associate of Albert Hakim and Richard Secord, both of Iran Contra fame. They both became better known. Other clerics and officers who were opposed to the Khomeini government, were neutralized. Some of them were assassinated. The excerpt that you're going to be listening to was recorded on January 23rd 
1993, three days after Bill Clinton was inaugurated. We're going to illuminate about that uh, a little bit later in the program. I want you to note, though, in my conversation with Farah, that I specifically mentioned that the counterterrorism networks that were manipulated by then-Vice President and former CIA Director George Bush to effect various things such as the Iran-Contra affair and networking with some of the very terrorist elements that we are told we were opposed to, uh, that the very same counterterrorism network was in place when Bill Clinton took over, and that it could be very easily manipulated to destabilize Bill Clinton's administration. You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. Long article-length descriptions of the For the Record programs are available at spitfirelist.com also featuring information that wasn't in the original program due to the limitations of time. Uh, One of the things that was instrumental in destabilizing Clinton's administration, of course, was the Linda, uh, not Linda Tripp, but the Monica Lewinsky affair. Uh, Clinton being something of a fool, although not a bad president, was, was reckless in the extreme. He had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. This became known to a woman, a woman and a White House staffer named Linda Tripp, less than T-R-I-P-P. Now, Linda Tripp was a Bush White House holdover who had a top-secret clearance and a background in counterterrorism. She specifically had worked with the Delta Force, an elite uh, military unit, unit that is used as counter-terror special operations troops. It was Linda Tripp who first alerted Lucianne Goldberg to the Lewinsky affair. That ultimately helped weaken Clinton's administration and resulted in the unsuccessful impeachment proceedings against him. It also, by the way, it was Linda Tripp who was the last person to see former White House counsel Vince Foster alive. Foster allegedly committed suicide. I'm not convinced of that. However, I rule out that it was the Clintons who might have assassinated him. That uh, was a common theme of the far right in uh, the 1990s. Interestingly enough, it was Linda Tripp, again, a Bush White House holdover with a top secret security clearance who had worked with the Delta Force, who last saw Vince Foster alive when she served him lunch. There was a blonde female hair that was found near Foster's body, and, of course, the mainstream media and the right wing began speculating, well, maybe that was Hillary Clinton and she killed him, etc., etc. Well, Linda Tripp is blonde. I don't think they ever did a DNA test, and certainly there was no media follow-up as to whether or not uh, that hair might have belonged to Linda Tripp, who again was the last person to see Vince Foster alive when she served him lunch. Uh, the question I have is whether that last lunch was in effect uh, Vince Foster's last supper. Uh, certainly it was the last meal that he ate. Whether or not there was something in that is, as I like to say, no pun intended, food for thought and grounds for further research. Do take note of my speculation in this uh, program uh, from January 23rd of 1993. So here is an excerpt from AFA program number 38. Now what we've just looked at uh, were CIA-instigated coup attempts against the Shah in order to form to to force reform so that the Shah would not be thrown out of power, thereby again tossing a wild card into American anti-communist policy. Okay. The other part of it is to force him to accept some of the terms that they wanted to have and some of the advantages that they wanted to take in Iran. Okay. It wasn't as much that the CIA was interested in reforming Iran. Oh, right, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the significance of this coup in 1963 is because at that time, Karani formed an alliance with Khomeini. Mm-hmm. And Khomeini was actually arrested in June of 1963 after inflammatory speech that he gave out 
on June 3rd, uh, in which he threatened the Shah that he would bring him down, and he was arrested the next day. Mm-hmm. Now, when he was arrested on the June 4th, the June 5th was the biggest uprising in Iran, and that, during that time, we also remember that that was the cause that Khomeini's name became the household word again. And in November 4th, 1964, finally, Shah decided to send Khomeini on exile, and that's where he went to, first he went to Turkey, and then he went to Iraq, and he was there for 14 years. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that we are mentioning this alliance, because when in 1979 Khomeini came to power, General Vali Garani, who had sent his emissaries to meet with Khomeini early part of 1978, informing him that if he reduces his rhetoric to the Shah's departures, the Americans are ready to take him out. And this is in accordance to interview that I had with uh, former prisoner of Iran, Abul Hassan Banisad, that he said that the emissary went over there and they said to Khomeini that you have to reduce the attack on the United States and emphasize on the Shah's departure because the Americans are ready to take him out. And when Khomeini came to Iran in February 1st, 1979, then we find out that by the 12th of February 1979, General Vali Karani became Khomeini's first chief of armed forces. This was in uh, February of 1979. And, and, and Varani had been a participant with CIA backing in the previous two coup attempts against the Shah. Okay. Now, Unsuccessful. Go ahead. Something that is fascinating is this, that on February 11th, 1979, General Karani calls General Hussein Fadust, who was the Shah's eyes and ears. And again, that's the schoolboy buddy of Richard Helms and the Shah in Switzerland. Right. And who now, provided Richard Helms with the information about the Shah's cancer that, when Helms was U.S. ambassador back in 74. That's correct. Go ahead. Now, now we have in our situation, and we have done this study very carefully, that what we have is the Shah has been out of Iran because he left Iran on February 6, on January 6, 1979, and Richard Cotton was in Iran in early part of January to pave the way for the Khomeini's triumphal return. On February 11, Garani calls General Fardus and is asking General Fardus for appointment of the top military man for the head of Savak, for the head of uh, Navy, and for the head of uh, Air Force and the Army. Now, this is the fascinating part. We know that Admiral Madani, who later was financed by the CIA, his name is spelled how, Farah? It's M-A-D-A-N-I, Madani. Okay. Mm-hmm. He who was later financed by the CIA for his bid for the presidency of Iran against Banisat, and who in 1983, <clears throat> with the blessing of Reagan, was uh, paid by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia $3.4 million as the head of Iranian Navy. Then we have... The head of the Iranian Air Force, whose name was General Shapur Azarazin, who was a friend of Albert Hakim and General Sikor, and a silence partner of Albert Hakim. All right. Now, this this uh, head of the Iranian Air Force's name was what? How is that spelled? Shapur is mm, S-H-A-P-O-U-R. Okay. Uh, Azarazin is A-Z-A-R-B-A. Mm-hmm. R-Z-I-N. Okay, and they are, he is an associate of Richard Secord and Albert Hakim, two, two U.S. intelligence operatives who obviously were centrally involved in the Iran-Contra affair. At the present time, General Azerbaijan shares offices with a former close friend and partner of Albert Hakim in Beverly Hills. Okay, and so, the, so he's now in Beverly Hills. That's correct. 
Okay. Now, this is now, the, the date now. We're going to have to, again, Farah, we have about 20, 25 minutes left. We're talking about February 11th, 1979. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, when Jen, uh, I'm sorry, when Richard Cotton met in 28th of December 1978 with uh, Khomeini, there were a few things that he mentioned. He believed that Ibrahim Yazdi was a leading, a leading tactitioner in the Khomeini camp. And this is quite significant because in that meeting early on, Khomeini did state that he was not interested in mullahs or the clergies taking over the government, and he left the impression that the present success of the movement was the gods ordained and inevitable within Iran. However, later on in the meeting, Khatam concluded that Khomeini's movement definitely plans to organize a political party to draw on Khomeini's charisma. And Khatam thought that such a party would win all the majlis or the parliament seat in contest. Now, it seems to me that Richard Khatam knew what was in Khomeini's head better than Khomeini did himself, because that's exactly what happened. You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. You can subscribe to the comments posted on the SpitfireList.com website, most of them by a brilliant contributing editor who uses the moniker Terra Fractal, specializing, but by no means exclusively, in economic and financial matters. Okay, now let, I want to read a couple of the paragraphs, uh, reread one and read another paragraph from the circular letter, because I want to move through the events of February and November of 79, uh, because again, we're, we're nearing the end of the program. Uh, again, reviewing paragraph 7 of your circular letter, in early October of 1978, the Agents for Bush covert team brought Khomeini back to Iran from a 14-year exile in Iraq, stopping off in Paris, France, for a four-month Western media blitz. Now, we've been talking about events on February 11th of 1979. Three days later is a fir the first takeover of the U.S. Embassy, an abortive one. Paragraph 8 of your circular letter reads as follows. On February 14th, 1979, Two weeks after Khomeini's return to Iran, the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was seized by Khomeini's supporters disguised as leftist guerrillas in an attempt to neutralize the left. U.S. hostages were seized, but to the chagrin of Khomeini's fundamentalists, the Iranian coalition government restored order immediately. Yes. However, that same day, Khomeini's aides supplied the embassy with a team of Iranians for compound security. Ambassador Sullivan, again an associate of Bush Shackley et al., Ambassador Sullivan installed, armed, and trained this, quote, SWAT squad, unquote, led by Savak CIA agent Mashala Kashani, spelled M-A-S-H-A-L-L-A-H, K-A-S-H-A-N-I. Now, this was three days after February 11th of 79, and this first abortive takeover of the embassy uh, appears to be arguably the central strategic element in setting the stage for the eventual takeover of the U.S. Embassy on November 4th of 79. That's correct. One thing that we should mention here is also that on February 14, 1979, when the first attack came on an American embassy, according to Sullivan, he has said that he predicted according to him, that he predicted this attack, that is going to be an armed attack. How did he predict it? I don't know. But what is important in his book, My Mission, I mean, his, uh, his mission to Iran, he has stated in his book that he would draw all the M-16 rifles from the guards and give them their only side arms. And this was done with the intention that they would know that they are not going to defend the American embassy, even the embassy was going to be Occupied. What you're saying is that he was basically disarming the Marine guards at the embassy so that they would not be in a position to use their firepower to prevent this takeover. Right. Okay. And according to him, all explicit instruction not to fire the weapon and use their sidearm only if required for personal self-defense. Right. Not for the embassy, but for themselves. That's correct. Go ahead. Now, what is happening on that day is another episode on February 14th in Kabul, Afghanistan. The American ambassador, uh, Dobbs, Spike Dobbs, was also kidnapped 
and in a crossfire, he was killed. Mm-hmm. That also was blamed on the leftist guerrilla. In fact, they were not the leftist guerrillas, they were the Islamic fundamentalists that they were demanding the release of their leaders from prison. Mm-hmm. In Iran, this was dubbed as the mm, leftist guerrillas that they occupied the embassy and they took the hostages. And those uh, guerrillas were supposed to be the members of Fedayan guerrillas that during all the uh, uh, years of the Iranian revolution were fighting the Shah's army and fighting the Shah. And between February 9th to February 11th, the Fedayan guerrillas and the Mujahideen guerrillas were fighting the Shah's army. Finally, they defeated them and put uh, Mehdi Bazar Khan to the office. Now, these are the people that supposedly have attacked. Now, okay, this no. is absolutely, absolutely, positively incorrect. I have fully investigated this. The man that I have uh, quite a few eyewitnesses, they were all interviewed, and there were none of the Fedayan Gurias. They were the people, they, they were imposters. They did this with one intention in mind, and they wanted to discredit the left and put the blame on the left so they can neutralize that, them, and that's exactly what happened. So the this abortive takeover of the embassy, prior to which William Sullivan, by his own account, disarmed the Marine guards, was blamed on the left, discredits the left, and also serves as the occasion for a group of Iranian fundamentalists, Islamic fundamentalists, Khomeini's people, to be installed as basically a security team at the U.S. Embassy. And it, uh, the, the information that you presented here is that this was headed up by a fellow named Mashallah Kashani, a Savak CIA agent. So as a result of this abortive takeover, we have the left discredited, which obviously would be to the liking of the CIA, Bush, and company. That's correct. It also serves as the occasion to install a group of CIA and Savak-trained Islamic fundamentalists loyal to Khomeini in order to maintain the security of the U.S. Embassy. Right. Okay. Now, there's two, three things over here that we have to uh, bring up to the attention of your listener. Number one, who defused the situation? There was a very uh, favorable... Uh, Ayatollah, who was actually fighting Iran uh, while Khomeini was in exile in Iraq, whose name was Ayatollah Talagani. It's T-A-L-E-Q-A-N-I. He was the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Council that immediately he ordered a special session to investigate what was going on. And Talagani himself, when he learned when he learned that uh, the Fedayan were involved, he called the Fedayan headquarters and demanded to know what kind of a asinine action this was, and he was told by one of the leaders of the Fedayan that they not only they didn't know anything about it, they were not involved, and they are interested to find out who has done it. And Ayatollah Talagani uh, was convinced. Talagani sent General Karani into the embassy to help to uh, end the situation. And among the people that they went to the embassy also was Ibrahim Yazdi and Ayatollah Beheshti. Supposedly, according to William Sullivan, Beheshti and Talavani were the two individuals that they helped to get the release of the hostages. However, the same day, the same day, what happens is fascinating. In the early afternoon on February 14, Yazdi and Garani and about 75 to 80 armed men, they have arrived over there, and these... At the U.S. Embassy. At the U.S. Embassy. Mm-hmm. And these 75, 80 men were introduced to William Sullivan at the American Embassy. Mm-hmm. Later on, in the book of uh, William Sullivan, he was talking about this individual Mashallah Kashani and his group. However, at no time did William Sullivan mention his full name. The only thing that he has said about the Mashallah Kashani is our trusty butcher. Now, 
So this, this is Sullivan, Sullivan's references to Mashallah Kashani. That's correct. Okay. Now, this group were presented as a group of Mujahideen to uh, William Sullivan. According to William Sullivan, he had his close friend, the CIA security expert, Mike Coughlin, to organize and train everybody within this group. This was, uh, how is that man spelled? Mike Coughlin? Yes, Mike, and uh, the last name is C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. Okay. Of particular note by Sullivan was that the leader of Mujahideen group, a colorful, burly uh, butcher from the south of town, in his book, Mission to Iran, Sullivan refers to this individual as our trusted butcher. Mm -hmm. But he never mentions his name. Now, this man's credentials came directly from Khomeini. Mike Coughlin, under Sullivan's supervision, trained this trusted butcher and his crowd, which were a bunch of uh, wrestlers, to a SWAT squad team and armed them with a sub-Uzi uh, machine gun. Okay, and then these are the people who are in charge of security for the U.S. Embassy That's in correct. Iran when the takeover takes place in November. That's correct. Okay. When Sullivan in April, early April 1979, left Iran, according to him, he made a preparation for his departure, and I quote, for this exercise, Coughlin, that is the security expert and his friend, relied primarily on the Mujahideen under the direction of our trusty butcher, who by now became quite enamored of Americans and devoted to our protection. In fact, their closeness became almost, you know, embarrassing because there are photographs exist that Sullivan and his aides are kissing this Mashallah Kashani at the airport when they are departing. Now, not, not the sort of behavior we in this country have been led to expect uh, from an American ambassador uh, towards Islamic fundamentalists. That's correct. Right. Now, I would like to, because I think that we are losing too much of time, there is a study done as a threat analysis group, Department of State, Office of Security, and this threat assessment was prepared by Stephanie C. Stouffer, S-T-E-F-A-N-I-E, C is a middle initial, Stouffer is S-T-A-U-F-F-E-R, on June 14, 1979. Now let's see what, he ta- what she talks about the security of the compound. Quote, at the present time, the compound is protected by uh, elements of the Mujahideen led by Mashallah Kashani. Hmm? Okay. who claims to hold credentials directly from Khomeini. His forces, which obviously number approximately 40 in reserve located in the two mosques in the area, are untrained, lack discipline, and are armed with a variety of weapons, some stolen from U.S. Embassy, as well as radio equipment removed from the chancery on February 14, 1979. Foreign services personnel report that only 5 to 10 of these guards are on the compound during the daylight hours, during evening and so on. Of definite concern is the embassy's lack of control over the after-hour activities of Marshall and his troop. He has used the embassy compound to run his own revolutionary and intelligence operation. He has brought SAVAK agents. Of course, when he's talking, they're talking about SAVAK agents. This is a cover. It was not a SAVAK agents. Okay. On the compound and used the motor pole officer for interrogation purposes. Open learning of the possibility that Mashallah may have tortured uh, a prisoner on the compound. Now, who is this prisoner that they're talking about? He was the leading, one of the leaders of the Mujahideen, Muhammad Saadati, that soon after Ambassador Sullivan left Iran, and sometimes in May of 1979, they kidnapped this Mujahideen leaders. They themselves are supposed to be Mujahideen, but they uh, kidnapped the Mujahideen leader. They brought them... They brought him to the American embassy, and they tortured him on the embassy compound. Now, this is the official U.S. government report. Okay. Now, again, Farah, we're running very low on time, and there's such a wealth of detail in your account that I want to uh, move up to the the actual November of 79 takeover, simply because I think that uh, a lot of listeners probably at this point, we've been talking for the better part of two hours without a break, are uh, perhaps losing uh, some of the detail, losing the forest, for the trees here. So Kashani, again, is in charge 
of security for the U.S. Embassy. He is in, he is working for CI and Savak, according to your information. Yes. And he, on the February 14th, 1979, abortive takeover, which would appear to have been done with the tacit complicity, if not active complicity, of William Sullivan. That's correct. Uh, the, the, this neutralizes or discredits the Iranian left because it is blamed on leftists. That's it is, correct. in fact, the takeover is done by fundamentalists and results in Mashallah Kashani working for Khomeini and the Savak and CIA. He is then in charge of security for the U.S. Embassy. We might perhaps refer to this, uh, Farah, as the Iranian St. Valentine's Day massacre. There was a famous organized crime killing by Al Capone in the United States on St. Valentine's Day, which I noticed this was on St. Valentine's Day. So we'll call this the uh, Iranian U.S. Embassy St. Valentine's Day massacre. That's correct. Now, this man was in charge of the American Embassy uh, security from February 14, 1976, I mean 79, Mm -hmm. all the way to June 12, 1979. At that time, based on the pressure that it was put by the members of the staff at the embassy to the provisional government of uh, Mehdi Bazargan, they were forced out of the embassy in a gunfire. Uh, finally, they were thrown out. Five days later, they came with a hand grenade attack at the embassy. Marshal Kashani and his troops. They, they launched a hand grenade attack? That's correct. Uh, abortive, obviously. Because That's correct. Of... Mm-hmm. And they brought almost about $8,000 worth of uh, uh, damages at the embassy. Now, between August of 1979 through October 1979, Mr. Ron Smith, George Cave of Iran Contra fame, mm-hmm. were visiting Iran, providing intelligence to Ibrahim Yazdi, and another uh, deputy prime minister who later became the Iranian ambassador to uh, Sweden named Amir Entezam, E-N-Z-A-M. And all these events that was taking place in Iran at the lack of security at the embassy was gone unnoticed by the top CIA official. Now, reminding you that George Cave was a man that went to Iran during Iran-Contra with Bob McFarlane, Oliver North, and Emran Nir, and quite a few people to negotiate the arms for hostages deal in Iran. Right. Now, let me very quickly read paragraph 9 because we're almost out of time. Pro-Bush CIA official George Cave visited Iran from August through October 31st, 1979, to provide intelligence briefings to Khomeini's aides. With all the Iranian officials who had restored order in the first embassy seizure eliminated, the stage was set for what happened next. So Kashani, in November of 79, is no longer in charge of security for the embassy, but he presumably would know a great deal about uh, anything. Now, is it your contention that Kashani's role was basically to, to scope out all of the strategic considerations later involved That's in the, the, the tactical aspects of the takeover? That's correct, because the students, according to Gary Sick, when he says that when the student got to the embassy within a matter of few minutes, they took all the nerve key points at the embassy and they were able to uh, blindfold all the hostages. The students, they were never aware of what was going on in the embassy and... Mashallah Kashani was the man that led the attack. So this, this, uh, Kashani led the actual physical attack on the embassy in November of 79. That's correct. Now, how did this take place is very important also, because at the first embassy takeover, there were three individuals that they were very instrumental. One was Ayatollah Talagani, that who ordered General Walikarani to go to the embassy, and then also was Talagani himself, and there was another Ayatollah who was uh, uh, within the Revolutionary Council. By April 24, 1979, General Gharani was assassinated by the terrorist, unknown terrorist group named Forgan, F-O-R-G-H-A-N or Q-A-N, who was supposedly linked, in accordance to Iranian government officials' record, to uh, Richard Helms, who created this, during his ambassadorship in Iran, this also is recorded in that Steph- uh, Stephanie uh, Jennifer Stouffer 
threat assessment report about Fogon that he she says that the Iranians believe that this was a case that Fogon was created by Richard Helms in Iran. Now, General yeah. Ghani was assassinated on September 10th, 1979. Ayatollah Talani, who was very much against the hostage taking and American uh, American embassy attack on February 14th, he after. He met with the Soviet ambassador on September 10th. He was poisoned and killed. This was the Ayatollah? Ayatollah Talagani. And he was opposed to what Khomeini and CIA were that's doing. Co- that's correct. And, 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 the, and embassy takeover on February 14th. Okay, and the general, uh, with, this was General... Vali Garani. And he was the fellow who was involved in the 58 and 63. That's correct. Okay. But and he was a pro-Carter, and that's why they wanted to move him. He was very much interested in developing a cordial relationship with the United States during Carter administration, and he was very much against the embassy takeover, and that's why he and Ayatollah Talagani was removed. And, and he was assassinated by a quote, unknown, unquote, uh, group Forhan, which w- is believed to have been formed by Richard Helms. That's correct. Okay. Now, on August 12th, the State Department communicated to U.S. Embassy in Tehran discussed the intelligence briefing. Hmm? Now, we talked about September 10th. I'm quoting, CIA asking our charge in Stockholm to inform Intazam that we are prepared to give the briefing any time after September 10th. Now, September 10th is the day that Ayatollah Talagani actually was dead. The charge would ask Intazam to contact Dr. Yazdi and have Yazdi to contact you so that the exact day of briefing can be set. The CIA had advised Intazam that K would be available for this first briefing in Stockholm after September 10th. It is possible that George K will make another trip to Stockholm for further discussing with Intazam. Close quote. Okay, now I tell you what we'll do, Farah, because we're out of time. Uh, we will continue this next week. I would like to move on up uh, through the embassy takeover and uh, to some of the geopolitical considerations behind the CIA Islamic Fundamentalist Alliance, because I do want to fit this into the context of some other things that I'm talking about. But uh, reviewing, and we will continue the discussion next week so you can provide us with, with some of the details that are not in the circular letter here. But basically, the to sum up what we've been looking at, the Islamic Fundamentalist Movement was tabbed in Iran, and I suspect that the Foster Dulles observation in his 1956 book had much to do with uh, other with U.S. policy in other areas of the Islamic world, such as Afghanistan. But uh, Islamic fundamentalism seen as a bulwark against the spread of communism, with the Shah's cancer having been known to the U.S. and the CIA from 1974, when Helms is ambassador. Uh, the U.S. begins setting the stage for the Islamic fundamentalists to succeed the Shah in Iran. Jimmy Carter, in 1970, and George Bush is actively inquiring on behalf of CIA concerning the successor, successor to the Shah on November 4th of 76, a day after Jimmy Carter defeats Gerald Ford. Jimmy Carter does not appoint George Bush, reappoint George Bush as director of the CIA. He appoints Admiral Stansfield Turner and then conducts a house cleaning of the CIA, dismissing many of the George Bush team. Now, in as the Shah's cancer progresses, Jimmy Carter is being fed disinformation, saying that the Shah figures to uh, stay in power and that his regime looks stable. This is not the case, and in fact, the CIA at this time knows that the Shah has cancer. The Islamic fundamentalist movement and Khomeini begin actively receiving the assistance of the CIA. The February 14, 1979 abortive takeover is blamed on the left in Iran, and this results in Mashallah Kashani and a group of Khomeini fundamentalists being installed as the U.S. Embassy's security team. Later on, George Cave, a pro-Bush CIA official, uh, begins passing intelligence uh, to the Khomeini forces. This is at, this is listed on October 31st of 19, or August of, through October 31st of 1979. And then in paragraph 10, the last paragraph of your circular letter, it reads, on November 4th, 1979, the U.S. Embassy was taken again. Leading the charge was none other than Ambassador Sullivan's, quote, trusty butcher, unquote, Mashallah Kashani, 
custody of a custodian of embassy security from February through August of 79. Now, with that hostage crisis, not only was Khomeini and the Islamic fundamentalist situation uh, entrenched in Iran, thereby realizing the CIA's goal of having a staunchly anti-communist successor to the Shah, but another major strategic goal was realized, namely uh, political vengeance against Jimmy Carter, because, of course, it was the hostage crisis that resulted, it was the main element in Jimmy Carter's humiliation and election defeat. We will pick up the discussion at this point next week, Farah, but uh, before it, before we sign off for this evening, a couple of points uh, that I want to make for the benefit of the listening audience. You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. All of Dave Emery's 36 years of work is available for download on the SpitfireList.com website. The site includes many articles not included in the programs, as well as a small library of old anti-fascist books. All of the material on the website is available for free. Sister station WFMU is podcasting the For the Record programs. To subscribe to the podcast, use the link at the top of the description for this program or on the front page. We have just seen this past week a new president, the first Democratic president since Jimmy Carter installed. Uh, he himself, in terms of his national security appointments, has turned to the Navy faction of the U.S. military and, and national security establishment, much as Jimmy Carter did. Uh, there has been a great deal of optimism and a celebration in the U.S. news media. There's been a lot of discussion about how uh, wonderful this is, and indeed, already there are some positive developments vis-a-vis -vis the Clinton administration, but I want to just read very briefly a section from the San Francisco Chronicle of Saturday, yesterday, January 23rd of 1993. There's a column by a fellow named Mike Litwin, L-I-T-T-W-I-N, of the Baltimore Sun, called A New Generation, and it reads in part as follows. Don't let anyone tell you there's not a dime's bit of difference between Democrats and Republicans. As an example, here's how you knew for sure this wasn't the Eisenhower inauguration. I'm watching the MTV ball, and one of the MTV floor reporters is interviewing somebody whose name, I believe, is Jellybean, and who may have once dated Madonna. The reporter asks Jellybean, as who wouldn't, quote, what song was it that got Teddy Kennedy's big butt boogieing out there on the dance floor? I was too stunned to hear the answer. Change? You betcha. Later, Don Henley is leading a sing-along. Senators, congressmen, now please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall, unquote. And all the senators and congressmen attending the MTV bash were asked to leave. Okay, they weren't really asked to leave. But don't, do you see the irony? But you see the irony here, don't you? They didn't, which is why they're in Congress. We've reached the evolutionary point wherein senators and congressmen actually want their MTV. It's a new day. You feel different. You feel renewed. Renewal having officially replaced change is a Clintonian byword. There's a little spring in your step. You have to feel good. Well, this obviously is the observations of this one reporter on Clinton's succession, uh, succession to power. The point that I want to make is that all of this is essentially stuff and nonsense. Not that uh, Clinton doesn't represent a positive development. In certain respects, if you happen to be a pregnant American woman and you want to abort, already you're in better shape. But that's, the point that I want to make is that the forces which destroyed Jimmy Carter are still absolutely untouched in this country. George Bush pardoned players in the Iran-Contra scandal and that faction of the national security establishment in the United States, and it is a dominant one that was associated with George Bush and Ronald Reagan from the November 4th, 1976 memo through their visits to their visit to Iran in April of 78 with Margaret Thatcher. That institution, that faction of the national security establishment, and the changes that were made in the U.S. national security infrastructure as a result of the Vice President's Task Force on Combating Terrorism, they are untouched, and they hover beneath, above, and behind Bill Clinton to this day, and Clinton is himself vulnerable to the same kind of destabilization that Jimmy Carter was vulnerable to and succumbed to, and that all the hoo-ha about MTV really should not deceive people in any way. And we're, I'm going to be talking next week more about how terrorism and the Vice President's Task Force has resulted in a reduction of the Democratic and, and, and could result in an elimination of the Democratic process in this country. But I simply, I'm going into this because it was 12 years ago, a little over 12 years ago, that the hostages were released. They were released on the day of Ronald Reagan's inauguration. And 
the lessons of history, which you are helping to teach us in uh, a very uh, profound and excellent way, Farah, should not be lost. People should not get uh, deceived by all this garbage about MTB and uh, having you know, the poets and the musicians and everybody boogieing in Washington. All of that plus a dollar will get someone a one-way ticket on the average municipal transit system in the United States. That what is really important is what underlies the facade of government and what you are helping to instruct us about, Farah, is how far-reaching the forces which became visible in the Iran-Contra scandal really were and what really underlay the October surprise. We will continue this discussion next week, Farah. Uh, to the two last points that I would like to make, and I'll give you uh, a chance to make some closing remarks for this evening, uh, is that you, you have yourself been threatened in the early 80s by some associates of Albert Hakim, who told you, uh, according to my understanding, that you should not discuss what you are discussing now. And it is also your understanding that you have been marked for death by the Islamic, fundamental, uh, Islamic fundamentalist forces in Iran. Am I correct? That's correct. So you are literally risking your life to bring us this information. And I, I have already have done that, but uh, Dave, allow me to uh, say this. Mm -hmm. There were many times during the course of my study, which it took uh, you know, two weeks after the first uh, hostage taking, I started my investigation, and two, my, two years, eight months ago, I did my formal investigation. During this time, there have been quite a bit of pressure from all sides and, you know, many, many uh, things that I had to face. I want to say to your listeners, there's always a price to pay. Somebody has to talk. Somebody has to really go and do the investigation for the cause of justice and what is right and what is wrong. We make contribution. My contribution is very little to so many of my countrymen and so many brave people that they gave their lives. My blood is not any more valuable than theirs. This is my contribution to many dear friends that they took me to their hearts in this country and allowed me to be in this country as a part of their very loving and caring attention. And this is my contribution to the people of Iran that for so long have struggled and given up everything in hope that they are going to have a democracy someday in Iran. And that was all dashed away. And to those people that they have branded many Iranians as a race of hostage takers, the criminals have to come to justice, face it, and this is the price that we all have to pay. And it's very little. What is important is people like you and very serious investigators that they have been very much of an inspiration for me during times that I found it very difficult I wanted to give up but when listening to late hours to your program and many people like you that they kept on fighting and fighting and fighting that was very important to me that's again from AFA program number 38 recorded on January 23rd of the year 1993. The rest of the interviews with Farah Mansour are archived on the SpitfireList.com website and are available for listening. Uh, Nothing in jumping to the present. Uh, this from The Hill of March 9th of 2016, noting how uh, Republican holdovers or appointees can serve as destabilizing elements. Comey's FBI makes waves by Corey, C-O-R-Y, Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T, and Julian Hutton, H-A-T-T-E-M. The aggressive posture of the FBI under Director James Comey is becoming a political problem for the White House. The FBI's demand that Apple help unlock an iPhone used by one of the San Bernardino killers has outraged Silicon Valley, a significant source of political support for President Obama and the Democrats. Skipping down, then there's the biggest issue of all, the FBI's investigation into the private email server used by Hillary Clinton, Obama's former Secretary of State, and the leading contender to win the Democratic presidential nomination. Skipping down again.
in these cases and more, Comey, a Republican who donated in 2012 to Mitt Romney, has proved he is, quote, not attached to the strings of the White House, unquote. Note that Comey is, uh, was a Romney supporter. By the way, he was not the general counsel for Palantir that makes the prison software. Uh, he was the general counsel for Bridgewater Associates that helped to capitalize Palantir. So whether or not we're looking at uh, something somewhat analogous to Linda Tripp and the counter-terror networks that helped to destabilize Clinton is, as I like to say, food for thought and grounds for further research. This concludes, for the record, Program 899, Farah Mansour on the Deep October Surprise. This is being recorded on April 6th of 2016. I'm Dave Emery. Ciao.